Amen. Welcome. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 8. We are going to pick up in verse 7 and go to verse 13 tonight. Excited about this study. A lot of stuff in it. A lot of interesting things. But, uh, you know, why don't you bring us a little bit up to speed and kind of what we're going to talk about some of the main points that we're going to kind of bring up, because uh, uh, Sean, if you don't know, Sean uh, always types up his notes for these times of um, Bible study, and he does just a great job of putting things together. I, I call it Sean's commentary. So, you know, some people go to, you know, the Matthew Henry's of the world and the different commentators. I go to Sean Richards and read his commentator Bible book. God very help cool. us. <laughs> no, very good. But why don't you just bring us up to speed, kind of the summary of the message today and kind of some of the main points. All right. Well, uh, starting us off, remember, we're beginning in verse 7, so obviously we haven't started at the start of this chapter, we've officially made a transition, kind of altering back and forth, and it's careful to let us know about when that has happened, by the way. Uh, in the book of Revelation, as John was taken up into heaven to see essentially what this world will look like during what we call the tribulation. And in the first half, we've seen the first seven seal judgment. The seventh seal is introducing the trumpet judgments, and we see in a uh, basically chronological order, these series of escalating in intensity and focus plagues that God will be inflicting on the earth. But as we've discussed many times before and will continue to do so in the future, the purpose of this isn't just to judge sin, to punish sinners, but it's to essentially narrow down options as far as alternatives people come up with for rejecting or accepting a relationship with God. And a lot of people will look at the things they have in this world and say, well, these things will always be here, and I'll always be able to enjoy them, and therefore, what's the need for preparation for the future? Some people go radically the opposite direction and say, the world's falling around around us, falling apart around us, and there's just no hope for the future. Well, we want to make sure we have a not just balanced, but an accurate worldview. And while the Bible is certainly giving us a bleak look into the future. These dealings of God with mankind aren't just sporadic. They aren't whimsical or on a, uh, uh, what, what would be the term to use, a, uh, uh, basically just on a whim manner. God's not doing this just for its own sake. What we're going to be seeing in the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments as well is this systematic deconstruction of everything that God has given to us. Uh, it was the uh, 21st century philosopher Stephen Wright who once observed, you never know what you have until it's gone. I wanted to know what I had, so I got rid of everything. And it turns out I had nothing. <laughs> well, despite being a self-fulfilling prophecy, human beings as a species are award winners when it comes to entitlement, taking for granted the good things that we've been given. Uh, I'm blessed enough to have a father who was fond of discipline, not just in regards to a more direct and physical sense, but also in a monetary sense. I had the dreaded privileges taking away treatment. And it was only when those things were taken away, I realized just how privileged I was, not in a modern college sense, but in a blessing sense. Mm. 
And the things that we oftentimes take for granted, these things we'll assume will always be here, are generally the sky above us, the earth beneath our feet. I see skies of blue, trees of green. What a wonderful world, right? But the emphasis that's going to be placed in these trumpet judgments is those things were given to you. You aren't owed these things. And when they're even taken away in increments, things get ugly fast. Yeah, I love um, one of the things that you mentioned, and, and you, you kind of relate this trumpet section of judgments, and you relate it to the book of Genesis. Mm-hmm. And so just as in the book of Genesis, God introduces stars to give us light and heat, and now he takes them away. And uh, to a degree, or, or not to entirely. a degree, right? Not not entirely. He introduces like a division in the book of Genesis between land and sea, right? That's in the creation of right. the world. There's a, a division between sea and land, and a certain one at that, right? And now that what we consider the topography of the world is going to be altered radically. Um, and there's an introduction in the book of Genesis to water and plant life. Um, and now we're going to see that that is going to be affected as well. So I love how you've put it that everything we read in the book of Genesis of how God's created the world and how it functions, we see in the trumpet judgments a real altering of those things that we do take for granted. Right. Um, and so let me read over the passages, and then you can kind of get into it. So we are starting in verse 7. It says, the first angel sounded and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood and they were thrown to the earth. And a third of the trees were burned up and all green grass was burned up. Then the second angel sounded and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood. And a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. And the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the water because it was made bitter." And continuing on to verse 12, then the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened, a third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. And I looked, and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth, because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Three woes. Yep, it's going to get ugly, but we won't cover that today. (laughs) It's already kind of ugly, as we can see. So starting with verse 7, hail and fire followed. Now, the sounding of the trumpet, like we said, we don't want you to just take our word for it. This sounding is through a trumpet, this heavenly event of an angel, literally a messenger, but we recognize it as a heavenly creature, sent forth by God to announce something, and the announcement produces a tangible impact on the world. There aren't uh, trees or plants or vegetation being burned in heaven while we're just kind of looking up and going, ooh, that's a pretty sunset. No, this is events in heaven impacting the earth. And what is interesting about this is that as we're basically given the context of what's been happening on the earth up until this point. The six seal judgments in Revelation chapter 6 involved in the second seal judgment a mass outbreak of violence on the earth. 
the, the self-restraint, the assumption of your neighbor having enough sense not to sabotage his well-being with you will be taken away, that among other things, the Holy Spirit's giving mankind over more and more to his baser nature. And in the midst of this violence, we see in the fifth seal judgment that specifically people who believe in Messiah, those who will be saved, Revelation chapter 7, through the 144,000's ministry, will be literally calling out for justice, asking, how long until you avenge our blood on those who are dwelled on the earth? And we discussed last week that that prayer is about to be answered. But what's scary about the answer is that it's uh, not only very direct and dramatic, but also very familiar. Because in the wide variety of ways this passage has been handled throughout history. Some have associated it as a symbolic reflection of the heresies that were prevalent at the time, or uh, the passing of a certain, you know, uh, phenomena like a volcanic eruption or something, taking a more naturalistic approach. I personally believe, and I think I'm in consensus here, that this means what it says— and it what? says what it means. <laughs> now, and, and now, when we're looking at the book of Revelation, there's uh, obviously there's different interpretations of the book. And so what Sean's pointing out is we have to look at the Bible as a whole. And when it talks about hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and they were thrown onto the earth. You know, in the these, context of God's wrath. In the context of God's wrath, we have to ask a question. And that is, has this happened in the Bible already? And That's how a, was it explained then? Yeah, and, and, and look into that and say, hey, before we jump to like some kind of interpretation that is maybe a little more ethereal or kind of, you know, out there, like the hail represents your eyes and, the, you know, or something, you know, something weird, you know, and believe me, there's many interesting interpretations of this. Yeah. Um, you know, but... We have to ask that question. So, Sean, where else in the Bible have we seen something like this? Well, not something like this. It's almost a quotation. In the book of Exodus chapter 9 and verse 17, God speaking to Pharaoh says, Yet as you exalt yourself against my people, note the common setting, that you will not let them go, behold, tomorrow about this time I will cause very heavy hail to rain down, such as not has been in Egypt since its founding until now. Therefore, here's the warning, send now and gather your livestock and all that you have in the field, for that the hail shall come down on every man and every animal which is found in the field and not brought home, and they shall die. He who feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh made his servants and his livestock flee into the houses. So notice, provision was made for those other than the Jewish people. But he who did not regard the word of the Lord among uh, left his servants in his livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand towards heaven, that there shall be hail in the land of Egypt, on man, on beast, and on every herb of the field throughout the land of Egypt. And Moses stretched out his rod towards heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, listen, and fire darted to the ground. And the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt, so there was hail, and fire mingled with the hail. So very heavy was it that there was none like it in all of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck throughout the whole land of Egypt, all that was in the field, both man and beast, and the hail struck every herb of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the children of Israel were, was there no hail. So there's no naturalistic way of explaining this. This fire and ice 
mixed together was a supernatural phenomena. And I would press those with these bizarre interpretations of Revelation to say, would you say the same for the plagues of the Exodus? They would say no. These are very plain, historical, supernatural events. And anyone who's taken our interpretation method, especially, especially at the sixth seal judgment, that the world has gone from natural to supernatural really quick. Hmm. This first trumpet judgment not only is interesting in regards to how it ought to be handled, kind of a litmus test of what you're doing with the text so far, but also in noting this point, if it comes to when, as you said, when it comes to reading anything in the Bible, if it hasn't been explained before, it's about to be. If it has been explained before, it won't be. This isn't given any further explanation apart from the hail and the fire and that there was also blood involved. That's maybe a little extra detail we didn't get in Exodus. Yeah, that, that's definitely interesting. But it's the <laughs> same event. It's the same phenomena. The only difference is the scope. Mm -hmm. We see on Egypt and the land in Egypt where God's people was, that was spared. Now we're seeing it everywhere. And I have examples in the book of Joshua to note, uh, well, how will God's people be spared then? I think God knows how to miss. But here's the point. When we're also talking about the interpretation of this passage, it's also interesting, not just in the interpretation of it, but also its target. Because as these plagues are unfolding, you'll notice the focus isn't like the seal judgments, where mankind's given over to a lie in the Antichrist, given over to his baser lack of judgment and the violence breaking out, given over to uh, essentially the economic woes we inflict on ourselves without even thinking about it, as well as the animal outbreaks and viral outbreaks that we'll see during the tribulation, costing a quarter of the planet's population. Christians have been persecuted, but never like this before. Cosmic events have happened, but never at this scale. Now we're just left wondering, how could anyone see this as anything other than the wrath of God? and they won't. <laughs> That's the good news. But the sad news is what's going to be affected by this plague, because remember, hail and fire doesn't just uh, dissipate whenever it lands on something. Even in Exodus, it noted the trees weren't happy about being pelted with fire and ice. And anyone who's uh, spent some time in Texas where they get some pretty gnarly hailstorms knows your car's windshield doesn't appreciate it either. But imagine this at a global scale and the consequences that would bring. But Note as well, the fallout of this is only limited to a third. The grass isn't doing good, but only a third of the trees are cut down. We'll get more to that in a second. But as you said, in Genesis 1, verses 11 through 13, we want to continue to emphasize this as a takeaway for you all. Not just look ahead and see how scary it's going to be, but how does this apply to my life now? How thankful are we? that we can look outside. I know you have to squint a little bit here in Arizona, but see something green. Most of you got the joke. When we're talking about the life that's propagating around this world and the things that grow naturally, the things that have been provided for us, natural beauty, even if it's rocks, is there. And we see it starting to get taken away. Well, when I was introduced in Genesis 1, 11 through 13, who gave that to us? God was the one who brought forth the grass, the herb, the trees, and the seeds according to their kind. And the one who gave it also has the right to take it. You see environmental activists going to town and saying that you have no right to affect nature. And to a point, they're correct. God's the one who established it. He also has the right to take it. But notice that as it's being taken, 
this deconstruction of Genesis 1 is essentially a fine example of how God judges sin in the first place. Hmm. Because if we understand, oh, he's going to introduce something we wish wasn't there, that's true. I do not want there to be fireballs of ice, and the ice is apparently frozen blood. I don't know. This freaky stuff that I wish wasn't there, that's an example of God's wrath. But in reality, what's the fallout of this judgment? God taking away something. And we see this throughout, uh, throughout Scripture as well. When people don't want the truth, what does Romans chapter 1 say? He gives them over to a lie. The same point is made in 2 Thessalonians 2. God's judgment isn't in the introduction of evil, but the removal of good. And when we see this first plague in the trumpet judgments, we see the removal of something good that he gave to us out of his own free will. And in a rejection of him, he's also starting to take away his blessings. And note this is the very definition of hell. It's not the introduction of this bizarre and macabre of, you know, conglomeration of underworld-esque ironic tortures and so forth. It's the absence of God hmm. and everything good that comes with him. So if we then start to put the pieces together, just what it means to experience the wrath of God, the removal of him, what should be in our minds if we want to receive the blessings of God to involve him? to bring him closer to us. Yeah, it's such a it's such a neat point. It's one that you almost, you know, want to just take a moment, Sean, and just kind of meditate a little bit on it. And I'm I'm a little slow and I do it, you know, when I do my devos, I kind of it's very, you know, I think through things as I'm talking about the scriptures and you know, I, I kind of like to ponder and pontificate it in my brain, you know. Not me. I don't think about anything. I just say stuff, and <laughs> I hope it go. sticks. <laughs> yeah, you know, that kind of thing. But I love this idea that you're bringing up, and that is, um, it's this this thing I wrote uh, near one of your quotes, or you wrote it. I just highlighted it. In this, we see exactly how God judges sin. He doesn't add things that we wish weren't there. So God's not adding things. He simply is taking it away. He simply is pulling away things. We are so selfish, we assume things are going to be always there. So we're married and we assume we might have assumptions on our spouse. Instead of having a thankful heart for our spouse, knowing that he who finds a wife finds a good thing, and we should be thankful to God. What you're saying is that what, what happens is we fall into this self-complacency, and instead of relying on God and being thankful for him for the things in our life, we become, again, assuming of these things, and so we start treating these things kind of trivially in our life. And when God just pulls it back a little bit, we realize just the weight that we're under. When he just pulls a little bit of his grace away, you know, we can start to feel what it's like when God is pulling away what theologians call common graces, mm -hmm. his common grace. The ability, like, you know, I turned on the water the other day. I think it was this morning, I turned on the faucet, and I just went, thank you, Jesus. You know, thank you for the, like, the water comes through the little faucet thing. 
and it washes my hands. And I thought, man, that's so cool. You know, I, this morning, it's just, you know, thank you, Jesus, for that. You know, because I know that one day I'm going to turn that thing on and it's not going to drip water. And I'm going to be like, man, what a bummer, you know, because uh, that's we live in a, a fallen world. But you're saying on a, on a bigger scope, you know, these common graces that God gives us, of course, our life, the breath that we get to breathe, the ability to think. The ability to experience emotion. Do you know I'm thankful that I'm, I have love for people. I'm thankful that there's compassion. I'm thankful that I have the capability to experience these things. And not just taking that for granted. Not just going days and checking out, but thanking, you're saying, thanking God. You know, coming to God. And saying, and as we draw close to Jesus, we start realizing that everything is a, is a gift from him. Now, there's two passages that I'll share, and that is one of them is in the book of Colossians chapter 1, and it is verse, I think, 18. But it talks about in Jesus, all things consist. In Jesus, all things consist. It talks about him being the creator in this section in Colossians chapter 1. And then it says, in Jesus, all things consist. They have their being in Christ. God is the creator. Everything has its purpose in him. And he starts taking things away. In the book of Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, it says, Jesus upholds as the creator. Jesus upholds all things. Really, everything is in the hands of God. You know, he really is in control of everything. You know, and when the creator just takes a little bit away, you know, and so why don't we get into verse 9 and 10, and um, or well, are we on verse 8? Well, and we'll uh, <laughs> just note this point as well. Verse Notice eight. that the judgment isn't total. A third of the trees are burned up. Yeah. But what, well, that will have some impact on the ecological systems and the companies that those resources depend on to make their living, there's other things that will be affected by this plague than just the price of toilet paper. How many homes will be affected by the wildfires that will break out from this? How many species of animals will go extinct because of either a loss of habitat, I was living in that tree, or starvation when they have nothing to eat off of or hide from predators in? For a time. Because note, while we can replant the grass, we can't uneat the deer. Correct. But now going to verse 8. That's a, that's a thought-provoking <laughs> statement. <laughs> took me a minute. I'm like, what? We can't uneat the deer? Okay. <laughs> and then That's why I love you, brother. Morning, so. okay. <laughs> uh, verse 8. Wait for the sparkles to fade. Then the second angel sounded, and then something like a great mountain, burning with fire, was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea became blood, a third of the living creatures of the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. I don't know if uh, you involve yourself much in social media, but there's this trend going on around uh, for my male audience, and they'll just like take a big rock, chuck it into the water, and then we watch the ripples. And, Guys like that stuff. Why? Not just because of the heavy lord being displaced somewhere, but because 
because we like to see the ripples and how it affects everything else in a once peaceful area. Women, you know this. Guys just like to disrupt. So if that's the small-scale perspective, what happens when we essentially are given a description, something like a mountain, or well, what's a mountain in substance? It's a giant rock, and it's on fire, and it looks like it got, you know, Babe Ruth down the center. Well, that, or Babe Ruth with the pit. Anyway, you get the idea. It got thrown into the uh, sea, specifically. Now, there's some people who would put forward the theory that, oh, well, what if this is like some sort of natural phenomena? There was this Japanese study about this volcanic island in Indonesia that would essentially imitate Mount St. Helens, except instead of the half of the mountain exploding onto the state of Washington, this would essentially just dump half of this mountain into the ocean, and they project the earthquakes that would follow from this. We had a similar event a few months ago. Would result in waves that might even end up overtaking modern-day LA. I respect the research, but I disagree that's what's being talked about here because the language isn't rolled or shoved. It's not like someone sloshing in the ocean. It's thrown. I think this is describing a meteor, and as we saw in the sixth seal judgment, that's kind of normal now. Yeah, it's interesting. You have in verse 5 the word throw. In the verse 7, you have throw. And in the verse 8, you have throw. We got a pattern here. We got a pattern going, meaning there's a lot of, it seems like, you know, I mean, I played baseball nine years, and uh, a lot of throwing, and, and you, you know, usually you throw pretty hard. Yeah, and you know. the uh, impact when someone's not paying attention speaks for itself. You know, and I also surfed a lot, and I can't imagine a mountain going into the ocean, and we all remember the tsunami, I think it was in... Uh, was it Indonesia not too long ago? It was like, uh, um, I'm trying to think if it was Indonesia, but there was an amazing tsunami. And I remember watching it on the, on the news, uh, people vacationing, and all of a sudden the water just coming up onto the, the land. And, and I was looking up tsunamis, the 10 most greatest tsunamis, and some of the waves that tsunamis bring are like in the hundreds, yeah. 115 feet. Well, and you speak to any engineer, water is the most powerful force short of just being lobbed and crushed under a rock because the amount of pressure, like if you've ever lugged around water, that stuff's heavy, around 9.8 pounds per basically liter, I think, Uh, full gallon basically. When you see the power of water rushing, what you're essentially getting is the same kind of pressure that's holding us down in gravity right now. So we're talking about devastation as a result of this, not just explaining the outcome of the rock, but also why it mentions the ships of the sea, not because they all unfortunately happened to be under the meteor when it hit, but because the resulting ripples from this effect is essentially going to end up relocating the the ocean's borders in a way where we're going to wish it hit dry land. Because understand what was another thing introduced in Genesis a fine line between land and sea. God caused the dry land to be separated from the sea. Now with a meteorite hitting the ocean and resulting in a third of all sea life, most of which we don't even know the existence of, is going to die. A mirror to one of the plagues of Egypt and it being turned to blood, people say, what if that's red tide? It says blood, I think it means blood. I think there may be room for red tide here. Maybe the plankton just got so excited from being hit by a space rock that they got scared. (laughs) But 
<laughs> in Revelation 16, it says blood, and it specifies. But here's the point. When we're talking about the fine line between the coastland and the dry land, if this rock hits the Pacific Ocean, we're talking Washington State, we're talking the majority of the populated areas of California, we're talking about Indonesia, parts of Australia, most of Indonesia and parts of China and Taiwan as well, are going to end up essentially underwater. And the Atlantic Ocean, that's half of Europe. Most of northeastern Africa or more northwestern Africa. Yeah, I was asking Sean a question earlier. I was saying, how many people, like what is the population of people in the world that live near the coast? You know, I grew up in Los, Los Angeles area, Ventura County area, Southern California. Um, but it seems like a lot of people live by coastal areas, you know, popula populations. And so the devastation of this, you know, we can't um, un maybe comprehend just how mighty uh, of a uh, disaster this would be worldwide. Yeah. You know? Uh, going to verse 10, a third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch. It fell on a third of the rivers and springs of water, that's drinking water. The name of the star is Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died because it was made bitter. Now, if we're going to, following our interpretation method, say, if the plain sense, the literal sense, makes sense, seek no other sense, lest you believe in nonsense. Well, if on the other hand, we say, okay, so a star in the most literal sense possible will crash onto the earth, I think we'll have more to worry about than just a third of the drinking supply. Yeah, because it would, uh, if a star, a literal star, if you're saying if it's a literal star, the earth wouldn't be around. No, our, our sun's not impressive as far as stars are concerned. And if it crashes into us, let alone we crash into it, that's it. So what else could this be? Well, we see in Revelation 12, Genesis 37, and others, references to stars as spiritual entities. I yeah. think that this is a supernatural event, and I can back it up with other language. You can look at this at your own time. In Jeremiah chapter 9, and verses 13 through 15, uh, any other translation than the New King James or King James references the wormwood as poisoned water. In the King James and New King James, it's referenced as gall, it's a fair translation, but it's very plain. We also see this in uh, the same word in Hebrew, ross, literally. Uh, we used to refer to cobra's venom in Job 20.16, and as well to poisonous fruit in Deuteronomy 29 and verse 18. But all centering around wormwood, it's this theme of something being undrinkable. And understand as well, this bitter herb, which was a literal thing, you can get wormwood today, it's not going to make people, you know, just pick up their water, sip it one day. It's like, why is it spicy? No, it's literally <laughs> going to kill people. <laughs> Sorry to go from like humor to dark that quickly, yeah, but I'd specialize in it. <laughs> We're talking about this idea of people basically not being able to go around three days without drinking water, right? Well, two thirds of it it's not like you're going to be able to divide this. I believe this is a spiritual phenomena. So one out of three people are going to be able to say, oh, good, my body is able to retain its fluids. The other person's going to be poisoned. Hmm. And, you know, you see movies with stuff like poisoned water and outbreaks. You wish it was 100% because then you could just say, don't drink the water. People will have to drink the water and won't know if it's going to kill them or not. Hmm. 
How much do we take for granted in the fact that we have running water, let alone potable? Because again, spiritual phenomenon. You can't boil this. That's scary. Hmm. But continuing on. Let me, can I uh, yeah, go ahead. just chime in? Um, I love this Jeremiah 9, 13, verse 15 quote. Now, it's, it talks about wormwood as well. Mm-hmm. And so you have it in your, in your commentary. And it says, the Lord said, because they have forsaken my law, which I set before them. Context of judgment. Right? They have forsaken Jesus, you know, in the book of Revelation. And have not obeyed my voice, nor walked according to it, but they have walked according to the dictates of their own hearts. Ooh, that's so true, right? Our hearts go astray. And after the Baals, we, we fall into idolatry, which their fathers taught them. Man, a real warning for us as fathers to teach our children well. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will feed them, this people, with wormwood. And give them water of gall to drink. God pulls away the, the streams. He pulls away the purity. And we're left with just this gall. And it, there's such a good spiritual insight to that, right? Mm-hmm. Of when we decide to go our own way. You know, when we decide, hey, I'm not going to go to church. Hey, I'm not going to read the word. Hey, I'm, I'm not going to be in prayer. Hey, I'm not going to reach out to the world. Hey, I'm not going to be about the business of my call as a Christian. Hey, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to be about the business of my own thing, my own stuff. You're drinking gall. You know, you're drinking wormwood. That's where you're going. Just bitterness. That's what you're consuming. You've missed it. You've missed drinking from the pure and living water of Jesus Christ. And you've gotten off your game. And that's Satan's tactic for us Christians, by the way, is always to get you off your call. Your call is to share the love of Christ, to be a light to the world, to lay down your life for others, to love your neighbor as yourself, to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And if Satan can get you onto all that gall, all that wormwood, He's, he's made you ineffective, you know. Where this world, they don't want the pure and living water, they're going to drink the gall. That's what they're going to get, the wormwood. Um, I, I do want to mention that chapter 9, if you just rolled over to chapter 9 and you read the beginning of chapter 9, you're going to see where it says, a fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth to him was given the key to the bottomless pit. That ain't no regular star we're talking about. It's a conscious spiritual entity. It's, yeah. a, it's a conscious spiritual entity. I like how Sean says that. <laughs> I don't know what an unconscious spiritual entity is like, but I definitely know what a conscience one, one is. Maybe but, an unregenerate soul. Yeah, totally. <laughs> but uh, so you can see, I just wanted to throw you over there real quick so that you kind of understand a little bit that star is not just necessarily a star in the sky. We'll give it a chance. If the literal sense would make sense, go for it, but it doesn't. So what's another explanation? We don't have to leave the book. Um, (laughs) Verse 12, 
the fourth angel, third of the moon, sun, stars did not shine likewise the night. Now you compare that to everything we've read so far, it's like, that's not that big a deal. Maybe I'll need a flashlight. I don't know. No, understand what's happening here. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 24 and verse 19, we're given a description of the last days, and it's uh, kind of scary if you haven't gotten the trend yet. The earth is violently broken. The earth is split open. The earth is shaken exceedingly. The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard and shall totter like a hut. Its transgression shall be heavy upon it. It will fall and not rise again. There's a term scientists use to describe our position in our solar system, the way the Earth orbits around the sun, where even the slightest tilt is what causes the seasons. And if you are familiar with the winter months, I know you have to use your imagination in Arizona, but note, sometimes it gets a little cold. That's because of the very slight tilt that brings us oh so closer to the sun during summer and oh so farther from the sun during winter. We get about a two to three hour drop in time as far as the day not shining is the common language that's being used here. And likewise, around 20 to 30 degrees of dropping in temperatures as well. If you were to increase that by another 33%, you may think that's not that big a deal for us in desert situations. Maybe it might be bad for people in Michigan or Siberia, but not so much for us. Well, be careful with that because noting a colder winter globally, universally. The earth will be adjusted a little farther than usual, so we have another increase of this. The lack of heat is a lot more dangerous than people realize, and that's not just because people probably won't be able to afford to adequately heat their homes given the third trumpet or the third seal judgment, right? All the economic disparity, air conditioning along with food. You have to make a choice. People are going to suffer, but not just that. Understand, uh, we won't go into details, but we found out firsthand a few times that even when it gets below freezing here, because our pipelines aren't dug as bare or buried as deep in places where they have colder climates, the pipes can sometimes freeze over, and that causes the sewage to back up into homes. And that causes disease outbreaks, that causes homes literally to be flooded with the dookie water, and you have to throw literally <laughs> everything away, and for good reason. So uh, we're, we're, we're trying to balance this here. I'm but, trying not to crack up, sorry. <laughs> but think about that for a second. That's going to be horrifying on a global basis. Colder winters means less food's going to be grown in a longer period at that. I mean, you thought the Chronicles of Narnia with no Christmas, right? It, it's going to be scary. But think about that for a second when we're talking about the severity of these judgments. And then verse 13, we're told, you ain't seen nothing yet. The first trumpet judgments, yeah, they're trumpets. But the next three are described as woes or literally expressions of terror. All that being said, though, the good news that we can take away from this is not only that these are limited judgments, we're not being handed over to them fully. The second good news is that these are in the future, not the present. But even if they were presently happening right now, we had missed the rapture, we were going through almost to the halfway point of the tribulation, we were seeing this firsthand, what could people, maybe even listening to this recording, wouldn't that be a trip? Say hi to everyone going through the tribulation, but note the point. <laughs> maybe they need a laugh too, but here's the point. As they're going through all of this, what truth could they reflect and take away from this passage as well? Yeah, we're living it. So what? Well, here's what. First of all, if you want to understand the Bible, you need to know it. The majority of these plagues are using terms that expect us to understand they've already happened to lesser degrees. 
if you're familiar with the Old Testament, the New Testament's essentially going to be review. And that's why our goal here at Calvary Christian Fellowship is to teach, as Paul said in Acts 20, the full counsel of God's mm. Word. We don't want to neglect that because it only robs you of further understanding of things that are quite plain. The second thing we want to note is that God's punishment is the removal of Himself. Therefore, if I want the blessings of God, I shouldn't seek the blessing in of itself. I should seek its source. Because I just, we just saw the world even a third removed from God's blessings, and it got ugly fast. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting. All the, all the people of the world have God's blessings, if you will, these common graces already. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean that they seek God, right? Right. Yeah. And then finally, understand that even this planet's position in our solar system is one of those gifts. The more we spend time reflecting on how good God has been to us, the less time we'll have to groan over the things we don't have the character to support possessing anyway. That's why 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 18 says, In everything, not for everything, but in everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Mm, Amen, Sean. Um, The scripture I wrote down at the end of all your wonderful notes here was, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Matthew chapter 24, verse 35. Add that to the list. Yeah. So let's pray, and then we're going to enter into some time of prayer and a little afterglow time. Father, we thank you so much for your word, and we thank you for those common graces that we experience here. We want to be people of thanksgiving. Your word tells us to give thanks with a grateful heart, Lord, and give thanks to the Holy One. And Lord, we want to be people of thanksgiving. We want to be people that always um, look at our lives through the lens of you and who you are, and that you are our greatest reward. You are our shield. You are our refuge, our fortress. Uh, Lord, we don't want to just seek your gifts. We want to seek you. We want to seek the creator and Lord, we want to have a a relationship with you that is unencumbered by the burden of sin and heaviness. Father, you tell us to throw off the weight and the sin that so easily ensnares. Look to you, Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before you, you endured the cross, despising the shame. And we thank you so much for that, Lord. We thank you so much that you are the God of love and that you would penetrate this earth and that you would lay down your life for us with joy, that you would have joy in your heart to win us to you. Thank you so much for that example. Uh, Father, may we be a church that is thankful uh, beyond measure that... Father, you would rid our lives of complaining and grumbling. Help us to learn to forgive one another, be kind to one another, show hospitality and compassion on each other. Father, bearing with one another, grieving with those who grieve and rejoice with those who rejoice. Father, help us to fulfill the call to which you've called us to, to love one another as you have loved us. We thank you for your word, for it is glorious, it is powerful, 
sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, it cuts into our hearts and teaches us and causes us to grow and convicts us. Lord, your spirit, we pray that your spirit would take your word tonight and touch our hearts, touch our lives as we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.